is a series where we've been looking at the uh, emotions that Jesus experiences and kind of the ones that we experience too, but we don't really always talk about and kind of normalizing them and figuring out what do we do with some of these emotions. We've already tackled some of the harder emotions like sorrow. We tackled disappointment. And today um, we are going to be looking at this emoji of Jesus. Can you tell me what you think this emotion is? Anger. Okay, good. This was much easier to identify for us, wasn't it? Right? Anger is an easy one to pick up. And I think that, that this one's easier for us to identify because it's an emotion that we all experience and are very, very familiar with. Some of us express it very bigly. I use that word. Some of us ex express it very smallly and we try to hide it. It's out there or we put it in the closet and try not to pretend until it busts out and then gets even bigger, right? This is a silly question because uh, I, I know we're in an election year, so I'm going to ask it anyway. As a country, we experience anger, but maybe individually it might be different. But I'm going to... How many of you have experienced anger before? Okay, everyone's hand should be up already, okay? How many of you have experienced anger this week? Okay, how about today? Oh, Sunday morning anger? Yeah, there it is. Okay, how many of you are just angry that I'm asking you to participate right now? Okay, there it is. Yes, thank you. See, I feel this. Listen, it, it's funny. As I was preparing this message on anger, I really did struggle a little bit because, well, it may not be for the reason that you think. I, I wasn't struggle, struggling because I'm always angry. I didn't struggle because this isn't an issue in my life that I address and kind of walk through, but I struggled because I was having trouble figuring out what makes me angry. What makes me angry? And when I struggle with figuring something out about myself, I'm so thankful for a wife who will help me when I ask her. You know, she won't willingly offer, you know, critical advice on me. But when I ask, she's willing to because she loves me. And so, you know, I did ask her, I said, Eileen, what is it that makes me angry. And she's like, I'm not really sure. I'm usually the one who gets angry in our house, not you. And I said, no, no, no. You usually don't get angry. You get hangry. Any hangry people? Yeah, this is like, you, you know, when you don't eat, you get hungry, and then you get angry. Um, all our kids just left, but we know they experience that, don't they? And then they still don't want to eat. You know, it's funny. I, I, I said, I get it, but what makes me angry? And she really thought about it. And then she did give me an answer. And after I asked Eileen, I asked my kids, I asked some friends, what is it that makes me angry? Each one of them paused because it wasn't what they expected. Eventually, each one of them shared something. Um, their answers were pretty similar, and I began to pray through them and think about them. And I do get angry. I'll share with you what I get angry about later, but... You get angry too, don't you? I have good news for us this morning. Jesus got angry too. This is good news for us because so often anger is used as like a, you're not allowed to experience this if you are a follower of Jesus. You are. You are allowed to get angry because Jesus himself got angry. We all experience it, but the reality is that how we handle our anger is the biggest difference, right? How we handle it can completely alter and transform the lives of the people around us for better or for worse. 
And Jesus didn't just get angry once. So often we look at the story where he flipped tables in the temple and we're like, see, he was angry and he grabbed a whip and he started, listen, that's, that's an expression of anger. But Jesus got angry so many different times throughout the scriptures in his biographies written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he gets angry almost all the time over the same things. What did Jesus get angry about? Today I'd like to look at a story that was read for us by Bill and not just from the gospel or the the biography of Jesus written by Mark, but also another one of his disciples, Matthew, noted and saw this same story. And so Matthew gives us a different perspective on the story than Mark does. And that's that's excellent, right? When you look at two people who write about the same story, you're going to get new details about that story. So we're going to be flip-flopping back and forth between Matthew and Mark to look at this story. And as we're looking at it, what we want to ask is, what made Jesus angry and how did he deal with it? Because that's what we have to figure out. How do we deal with the anger that we feel? And so we're going to start over in Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter 2. It'll be about three quarters of the way through your Bible on the right-hand side. And as you're getting into Mark chapter, actually, you could turn to Mark chapter 3, but In Mark chapter 2, to set this story up a little bit that Bill had read for us, Jesus and his disciples were walking through the fields one day, and they were picking the heads of wheat because they were hungry. And so they kind of put it in their hands, and they're eating it. And as they're eating it, there's this huge issue that comes into play here. You and I are thinking, great, they've got some wheat, no big deal. Well, to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders, it is a huge deal that they're picking wheat. It's not that the Pharisees have celiac disease and they need a gluten-free diet, like avoid the wheat. That's not what this is. They're ticked because it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a 24-hour period for the Jewish people that they hold to every single week where there is no work whatsoever that's supposed to happen. And so they question Jesus about why he's working by picking wheat And his response in chapter 2, right at the end, says, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Right? Simply put, this is what Jesus is saying to them. I know the rules. I've got this down. Those top tens, I know them. And I know why they were made and why they were given to you. And they weren't just made to be obeyed. They were made and given to you to protect you. And as much as you want to hold the rules over everyone, you can't hold this over me. And the Pharisees do not like his answer at all. So the next time that it's the Sabbath, they're watching for Jesus in the synagogue. They're watching for him to come, and they're kind of planning out how can we get him in trouble because we don't like the way he's responding to us. It puts him in a tough situation Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Now, let's jump really quick over to Matthew. Matthew sees this a little bit different. This is what he says in chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, now remember, they're talking to Jesus for the first time that we're reading, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. 
Do you notice the difference between Mark and Matthew here? There's a huge difference. It, Mark just talks about, like, Mark, Mark is great. He, it's like a reader's digest version of Jesus. Short, sweet, simple, bam, here you go. And he's like, Jesus goes to a temple or to the synagogue. While he's there, there's a guy with a deformed ham, and the Pharisees are kind of watching what's going on. Matthew notices, and he says, Jesus went in and he noticed the man first. And the Pharisees notice the man because they're hoping Jesus does something. So they set Jesus up with a question. And they kind of look at it different. The Pharisees in Matthew's story look at this man not as someone who is just hanging out in the synagogue going to, you know, temple that day and to service. He is, in the Pharisee's eye, is a pawn to get Jesus to slip up. He is not a person who's there. He's a pawn to be used. And now they're going to come after Jesus for the Sabbath. And so in Jesus' response to their question of like, hey, are you going to do something about this? In verse 11, it says, he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Mark hits this same question too. And he has Jesus' response in verse 4. He says, then he turned to his critics, and this is Jesus, and he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day for, to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. You see, the Pharisees are put into a funky spot right now. And I love this because Jesus pushes back on them. He's in total control of his emotions when he does this. And I, I, I like... I like reading Jesus and how he responds to people, and I know that it doesn't, the, the, these stories do not tell us how Jesus is feeling or his tone of voice, but when I read this, it's hard for me not to read this in a, like a snarky way, very logical, but snarky, like, come on, guys, that's a silly question, should you do evil or good? Like, you know what's in there. If you lost your donkey, you'd go get it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, when Jesus does this, what I like is he takes what people says and then he tries to take it to the, how, how far will you push this idea? How far will you go with your law that you're going to hold to here? And what's it going to cost? And so he does. He takes it down that logical law all the way down to say, would you do this? And, and please hear me. When it comes to the Sabbath, this is, I think, one of God's greatest gifts that he gives to us. He gave it to the Jewish people to take a day off to remind them, listen, don't work for 24 hours. Do not let work define who you are. Take time and do nothing. But when God does stuff like that, we tend to add extra rules to it and we add more to it to make sure that we hold to the Sabbath because the gift that God gave and this law that God gave, one of the top 10, they added extra rules like how much you could or how far you could walk, what kind of things you might be able to cook. When does it count as work? We do the same thing. Right? We do the same thing. We add extra steps in order to avoid breaking it. And, and there were, you couldn't really do anything. But there were two exceptions to the Sabbath where you could break the Sabbath and it wasn't a big deal. The first one came to saving a life. If someone's life was in danger, you were required by the law to break the Sabbath in order to save that life. Okay? It was a requirement not just a suggestion, a requirement to break it. The other exception was if a woman was in labor, you needed to take her to uh, the midwife or medical professional to deliver. 
Okay, this is really important. And I, I think that second one, yeah, that was developed by experience. You know there was some guy who was trying to hold tight to the Sabbath, and he's like, honey, hold on. Just, just give it two or three more hours. You know, we're almost done with the Sabbath. That's not going to go over well, is it? That's when you get this emoji. This is the angry wife emoji, right? Um, you know, just, just hang on. We'll make it through this. No, listen, you're allowed to break the Sabbath. Go get the help you need. Deliver that baby. This is good. So listen, when Jesus is approached by the teachers here, they're pushing him in on how far can I take the law? So Jesus pushes back. You tell me then. What's it better to do on the Sabbath? Is it better to do good? Is it better to do evil? Is it better to save a life? Is it better to kill it? Do you save your animals if they're going to die or fall? Yes, you would do all of these things. And so the answer is like simple. Yes, do good. Save life. They're no-brainers, right? He's not trying to be mean. He's trying to be honest and logical here. And what he's revealing, though, is the contradiction in their lives, that they would all agree, save the life, do the right thing, and yet here's a man whose life they're ignoring, a man whose life could use their help. They believe that God could heal. They believe that God could do things, but they're using this man not and seeing this man not as a person that God's created, but they're seeing this man as a pawn to get him in trouble. They are doing evil on him instead of doing good. And Jesus is trying to reveal not just what they believe, but what is in their hearts. This is the moment that Jesus gets angry. This is when Jesus gets angry. In verse 5 of Mark 3, it says, he looked around at them angrily and he was deeply saddened by their hearts. And he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Jesus was angry. Did you pick that up in verse 5? It just says it. He was angry. And the word anger there in the Greek has everything to do with wrath and fury. It's not like he was flustered at them. No, he was furious at them. And then that fury, that anger that he has leads him to being saddened for them. Now, follow me on this. His anger is not expressed in, in violent words or physical, you know, kickback. His anger is expressed, and then it takes the natural place of him being saddened, him being grieved or feeling sorry for is what that word means there. Over what? Over the stubbornness of the Pharisees' hearts. You see, I think Jesus is disappointed at their actions. And his anger and his sorrow are at their hearts. I'm reminded of what it says in Proverbs. And everyone in that setting in the synagogue would have been very familiar with this proverb where it says, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus can tell the attitude of these guys' hearts by what's coming out of their mouth, how they talk about this man who is sitting there. Their mouths have spoken clearly. We don't care about him. It's a pretty crappy situation for this poor guy to be in, isn't it? Could you imagine sitting there in temple and then they're like pointing to you and like, what are you going to do about this? What, like, I, I just came to worship. I didn't, I didn't want to be this. I didn't, want, I didn't want any attention being called to me. You see, they're intending to do evil. And their heart is the real issue that needs to be addressed. And so what does Jesus do? Does he scream at them? No. 
Does he unload on them? Does he get violent with them? Does he storm off, stomping his feet as loud as he can, or, you know, as hard as he can so there's a nice dust cloud behind so they'll know he's angry when he leaves? You ever slam the door really hard behind you just so they know? Guilty, right? Just so you know. Does he do any of those things? No. He stays right where he is, and he doesn't say a thing to the Pharisees. Instead, he looks at the man in front of him. And I think to show the Pharisees the depravity and inconsistency of their heart, he looks at the man with the shriveled hand, and that that word shriveled there actually is almost always used to mean deformed from like an accident that happens. So you're looking at probably missing digits or missing parts of a hand um, or wrist. And Jesus looks at this man, and he says, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And he completely heals him. Can you imagine what's happening in the synagogue when digits that aren't there become reformed, when hands that are cleft begin to stretch out? And this guy, his hand wasn't just being restored. He was gaining his entire life back to be able to work and to be able to be part of this community in a completely different way. I mean, how cool is that? Is that not doing good? And what do the Pharisees respond with? Anger. You see, two people get angry in this passage. Jesus gets angry and the Pharisees get angry. And the Pharisees, what do they get angry at? They, they want to leave and they want to kill Jesus because they didn't get what they wanted. They wanted an outlet for their anger, and that was to accuse Jesus of messing with the Sabbath, breaking the law, then we could take him out. But he revealed the different issue that was their heart, that you were intending evil for someone. That's never going to be good on the Sabbath, whether you're in synagogue, church, or wherever. You intend evil. This is not God's plan. You're missing the point, guys. We need to be looking to do good. Then you're never breaking the Sabbath. You've missed it completely. And so where does that leave us today? If I'm being very candid, I do think we have some anger issues in our country. Um, I think that that actually reveals the state of our heart as a country. And while it would really be easier to point fingers at everybody else, all those people, I can keep it general in the country, those people are wrong and those people are wrong. I think if we step back and we really look at ourselves as a church and as individuals who follow Jesus, I would say, I think we're angry too. And I don't always think that our anger is expressed like Jesus. It doesn't look like him. It's not the reasons he was angry. And I know this because I've sat with parents, individuals, teenagers for the last 20 plus years of ministry as people have unpacked the anger in their own life and the destruction that it has caused around them. Anger that's geared towards parents or siblings or spouses or friends. Anger that's geared towards kids and coworkers. And it boils over and it begins to take this, this violent actions towards people that aren't even involved in the situations that we're angry at. We get angry at coaches. We get angry at the person who cuts us off and, and speeds up a little bit to get on 295 at that stupid junction you can't figure out. And they just get they're not going to hear how loud you are in your car, but they're definitely going to see how wide your mouth is and the fingers that go flying out the window. You know, we are angry. 
And this anger, it's destructive. Not just on other people, but on us. Emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. If we don't learn how to deal with our anger and understand that Jesus was angry and it wasn't sin to be angry, but if we're not getting angry over the right things, we're going to be doing evil. We are going to be sinning against what God has and it's going to hurt the people around us. Even worse than just hurting the people around us. If we don't learn how to deal with this, do you know what we're doing? We're passing this on to the next generation and we're gonna have to watch them wrestle through the very things that we do with our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. This is not the blessing that Jesus wants passed on. This is a curse. How do you deal with your anger? How do I deal with my anger? I don't want anybody in this room right now to feel like, oh, no, I, I, what do I? God does not want us to pass these things on to our kids. He wants us to pass on being angry over the right things, standing up for justice in the right areas. Being angry is not a sin. Are you with me? Okay, just say that with me. Being angry is not a sin. Okay. But how we handle it matters. For those of you who are in the room today or you're watching online or listening and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, someone who pursues him and someone who has dedicated your life to his teachings, what he says, this can kind of get a little bit funky for us, okay? It gets complex because um, our faith is completely built on loving people and demonstrating a sacrificial love for, for people, but at the same time, we're still allowed to get angry because it's not sin. And, and so it's like, oh, how do I do this? Like, I, I'm going to love people, but I can get angry. What do I do? It's over the right things. And I love what Ephesians 4 tells us. And maybe you've, been, you've heard this growing up if you've grown up in the church. In Ephesians 4, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anybody heard this one before? Yeah, this one is great. I loved when this was preached on or talked to or, you know, kind of thrown at me when I was angry. Um, I have run into people who take this verse so literally that they will not go to bed until the problem is resolved. <laughs> Come on. Do you ever get angry with someone and it's not resolved before you go to bed and you're like, we have to stay up and deal with this? Does it get better? The later it goes into the evening, when Eileen and I have gotten into fights before and arguments, the later it goes, the worse it gets. Nothing good happens after 2 a.m., right? Come on. This is, 2 a.m. is like, that's normal bedtime for us. I know some of you are like, what? Uh, nothing good happens then. Sometimes people use this verse as a way of saying, you know what, we have to deal with this. We've got to deal with it right now. And they use it as like a weapon to berate the people who are around them. And they think, I have to get everything that I'm feeling out to you right now or I'm not obeying Scripture. And it's like, no, you don't. Hold on there. Right? That's not what this verse is all about. That's not what this verse is re even referring to. When the Apostle Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus, 